0: I know that when, when we sing that or we have that sung over us, there are times, there are seasons in life uh, where we can inevitably question his faithfulness, right? We, we can wonder, uh, is he really there? Does he really see us? Uh, sometimes God feels distant. Sometimes he feels incredibly close, and, and that faithfulness is just right in front of our faces. And so you go through these different experiences in these extremes. But I think regardless of what season you may be in and, and how discernible it may or may not be to you um, to see and sense his faithfulness, I, I think there's always a, a critical reminder that's worth pointing back to. And, and to offer that is, is an area of focus as we begin today before I pray for us. Uh, I've, I've shared this story, I think, at least once before, but it reminds me of much of what we're going to talk about today of uh, a professor that I had in seminary. He Uh, was an incredible man who taught me the the world religions class. That was the class that uh, I was in, and he was from India. He had grown up Hindu. His his father had actually helped build different uh, idols and things that would be used in different temples. And so he was around all these different religions. And then here he was teaching a seminary class in Southern California. And I remember asking him, or I don't think it was me, but I remember a classmate asked him at one point, well, how did you become... A Christian, like given that context, given that background, like how did you end up where you are today? And he stopped and reflected and he spoke for he he thought for a moment and then he just said, There's nothing like the cross. And and that was it. That was his answer. There's nothing like the cross. And and hearing that from a guy who had literally been surrounded by all these different answers, all these different options, this plurality of choices, for him to be able to go through all that and say, There's nothing like the cross. I say that to you to connect it to his faithfulness. Like if, you, if you wonder, where is he, if, if you need a reminder of his love, that your story's not over, right, that he is a faithful God, let me remind you there is nothing like the cross. And that's what we're going to look at today. So let's pray together and be reminded of this beautiful truth. Father in heaven, we, we love you. And we are so grateful that in our faithlessness, you remain faithful, and that in times where we struggle to see it, times where we we struggle to perceive it and know it, um, we can look to the cross, this wonderful cross that demonstrates the faithfulness to which you have demonstrated your love, the the way in which you have offered your grace, your forgiveness, your mercy. And, And God, may we never look beyond it. May we never forget it. And, and may it be the anchor of our souls that we keep coming back to, God, that the, that the cross and all that it demonstrates for us, God, would once again awaken our hearts and our souls to a greater devotion to you. God, as we consider that this morning, uh, we pray for your Spirit to fill this place. God, that, that as your people have cried out, all hell, King Jesus, God, that the voices of this church, of this congregation would be a sweet fragrance to you, God, and in return you would bless us with your presence, and you would once again open our hearts and our minds and illuminate through the teachings of your word, through the guidance of your spirit, the truth of this gospel and the power of this incredible cross and the resurrection that it points to. We love you, Father, and we entrust this all to you in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. All right, church, we got a lot to cover today, so we're going to get right to it. Uh, We've been working through this series on identity for the last several weeks, and we're nearing the end. We have this Sunday and the next Sunday, and we'll wrap it up before we head into Missions Month. And so um, what we've been working through, obviously, is this idea that when we know who we are, that's going to lead, lead to courageous living. Everything we've talked about throughout 2023 has been driven with that intent in mind. How do I live courageously for this gospel? And so knowing who we are, having a, a solid sense of our identity, is going to speak towards that courage or foster that courage. And so uh, we've, we've taken a chance or taken a quite a bit of time to look at how that ultimately is, is shaped and fostered through the image of God. We've looked at Genesis 1 and 2 and the ideal design, uh, but what we've all known is that it's a, it's a frustrating pursuit because we tend to always fall short. Uh, what we see beautifully designed and what we long for uh, we missed out on in what we talked about for the last several weeks is that the reason for that frustration is the sin and the, is the sin from the fall and the curse, and so what do we do? Like, how do we reconnect? How does this, this design get restored within us and that restoration comes through Jesus Christ and what we 've been really working through is how Jesus restores our identity specifically that we're made in the image of God, designed to flourish in that sort of relationship and in his image, but all of that is only made possible through Christ. And the three different aspects of what Christ has accomplished to bring about that restoration has been the focus for the last few weeks. We've talked about the incarnation last week and, and how he had to take on flesh to fully reveal what it means to live out this image and to flourish as one created in this image. And so we, we marvel at that mystery of him being fully God and fully man, but that it demonstrates our God sends him to help us, right? That he helps us in our weakness and in our need. Today we're gonna look at the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ before then next week we'll conclude this whole series by anticipating and and looking towards new creation. And so uh, a lot to cover today, but but I'm very excited because it is, at at its essence, it is the heartbeat of the gospel. And so if you have your Bibles, we're gonna be back in Colossians chapter one we were in this same passage not too long ago actually before we started talking about uh, the fall and we started talking about the curse we were in colossians 1 talking about how how christ was there at the very beginning right all things are created in him through him and for him melanie did a great job she read one of the verses that that we talked about several weeks ago uh, that everything is is held together by him he is the holder sustainer of all things and so we we've, we've looked at this a little bit but i intentionally stopped after verse 17 Saving verses 18 through 23 for us today as we have a chance to see how Paul unpacks even further uh, the message of the cross. And so if you have your Bibles, we'll pick up in chapter 1 in verse 18, reading through verse 23. It says, And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him And do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Okay, I love how Paul finishes this uh, this, this section of Scripture by focusing in on the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, I say that somewhat loosely because part of what we've seen both last Sunday, this Sunday, and the following Sunday is that it is really difficult to talk about just One of those aspects of what Christ accomplished, and just to isolate it. What I mean is, it's really hard to talk about the incarnation without talking about death and resurrection. It's really hard to talk about his death and resurrection without also talking about the incarnation, or either one of them without talking about the new creation and the hope that they're all so intertwined. You see traces and elements of them throughout all these passages that we're looking at. And so, you're going to see that again today. And we'll reference a little bit of it, but my intent is to go through these verses and really zero in on what it is saying about the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so we're going we're to walk through it just kind of a little bit at a time, and you'll see this overlap there at the beginning of verse 18, because it says, he is the head of the body, the church, he is the beginning. And, and this is anticipating some of what we'll get to next week, which is the new creation, right? That, that essentially, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the initiation of the church, right? It's the, it's the genesis of the church. You have that word there referenced as the beginning. And, and that speaks to this idea that Jesus brings a certain creative initiative. He starts something uh, through his death and his resurrection, and specifically Paul is pointing here to the church. And, and that's a pretty significant thing. Now, I'm not going to unpack all of that right now, nor am I going to have a chance to unpack all of it in its detail um, next week. But I do want to, to borrow from that for a little bit and connect it to what we've been talking about, the image of God. The, the fact that, that through Christ's death and resurrection, he initiates the church and is the head of the church. He's, he's the beginning of the church. Speaks to what his death really accomplishes. Um, that specifically, this is a restoration, not just in our relationship to God, but our relationship to one another. Right. That if you think back to what we talked about in Genesis 1 and 2. And, and what it meant to receive the image of God, that, that essentially it, it, it communicates this relationship that exists between God and humanity, humanity and creation, and humanity with one another. Right? Like you see that played out in every component of Genesis 1 and 2. And, and yet then when the sin of the fall happens and the curse happens, all of those relationships are frustrated. Right? Your relationship with God is now frustrated and fractured. Your relationship with creation is now altered and frustrated. Your relationship with one another is now broken and fragmented in so many different ways. And so when, when Christ comes through his death and resurrection, part of the restoration is this, yes, relationship with God that is restored, relationship with creation that is restored, but especially relationship with one another, and that is especially seen through the church. Right, that, that the church becomes this incredible depiction of restoration. Let me explain to you briefly how that happens. Right? That the, the reason that becomes such a picture of restoration is not because all of a sudden the church becomes this demonstration of perfection. Right? We all know there is no such thing as a perfect church. Right? Like that, that doesn't exist. But what it does is it becomes an incredible spotlight of relationships coming together that normally wouldn't. Right, it, it, it creates this incredible restoration of union. Uh, Ephesians 2 talks about the dividing wall of hostility being broken. We see in Galatians right, that it's neither Jew or Gentile, male or female, slave or free, that, that now under the, the umbrella of Christ all come together. It is a restoration of relationships. It is one of the most incredible and powerful expressions of the power of the gospel— when things that previously divided people, and, and, and it is not hard for us to look around and see current events right now to see how deep of a wedge can be ex- uh, created for humanity to think that Jesus can overcome all of it. right? Like He, he can overcome any sort of resentment, any sort of relationship, any sort of, of fractured dynamic that you may experience. It is now restored through the church. It's an incredible depiction. We'll, we'll talk about that a little bit more next week, but, but I want to call your attention to it today, obviously, because it's there in verse 18. And the main point that Paul's ultimately going to make that we'll get to here in just a second is that this is speaking to the supremacy of Christ. And so you can't really talk about death and resurrection or incarnation without also anticipating the church and this new creation that's on the horizon. But then listen to the next description that Paul offers. Not only is he the beginning, he is the firstborn from among the dead. Now, what is what does Paul mean by this? Uh, we've seen this word "firstborn" already in this passage of Scripture. He was the firstborn over all creation. And several weeks ago, when we talked about that term, we talked about how it can mean a couple of different things. One, it can mean a prioritization in time, right—the order in which something happened. It happened first. We also mentioned several weeks ago that it could reference uh, supremacy and rank right, that that you are the first one, the most important, like the firstborn often had rank over the rest of the siblings. And so what we talked about was that in reference to creation, firstborn over creation really kind of captured both of those sentiments, both of those ideas. Here, firstborn among the dead is really speaking more towards prioritization in time, right, that Jesus was the first one born from the dead. So, what does that mean? It's speaking to his resurrection, right? Uh, it's speaking to the resurrection of Christ. And, and this is going to be where we really end our message today. So, I, I'm going to save some of what I want to say about the resurrection because it comes up again later. But I at least want to make sure we understand how it's being described here. So, so, when he says, firstborn from among the dead, he's the first one born of resurrected life. You might be sitting there going, now, wait a second, he wasn't the first one resurrected because a couple of his miracles included a resurrection. Right? He, he, he had a couple of resurrections with some children. He had Lazarus, both probably most famously. And so how can we say that Jesus was the first one resurrected when he himself resurrected others? And, and the difference between the two is that when Jesus was resurrected, he was resurrected never to die again. Right? Lazarus and the others, they were resurrected, but resurrected back to an earthly state with, with death still on the horizon. And so this is a different resurrection. This is that eternal promise that once you were raised, you were never to die again, born from the dead. And the good news for you and me is the way that it is described as firstborn. Because it's not that Jesus is the only born from among the dead. He's the first. Which means what, church? More to come. Right? I love the way that that Carmen Joy Imes puts this together. We've, We've quoted her book throughout this series She says, his resurrection is not a unique one-time event, but a taste of what is in store for every believer. We are the harvest that is yet to come. You and I will rise again, too, when Jesus returns in all of his glory. Praise God. The hope of the resurrection embedded in that description, firstborn from among the dead. So it's a beautiful description, both of which, both this headship over the church, firstborn from among the dead, being the beginning, is really used here to emphasize the supremacy of Christ. He he has done all these things so that in him he might have the supremacy. And and so when we start talking about identity and we start talking about how we respond to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, part of it is to acknowledge the supremacy that Christ should have in our lives. Uh, Supremacy means all-surpassing. There is nothing greater. And so if we're going to treat this text faithfully, I think one of the questions I would ask you to consider this morning in terms of your identity and your response to this gospel is to ask yourself, does Christ truly have supremacy in your life? Right? Is he truly the one thing that is all-surpassing? That nothing is greater, nothing is more important. Now, we may say that with our mouths, but do we demonstrate that with our lives? Like the hours that we invest in, in whatever it may be, our jobs, our careers, our families, our addictions, our, our wants, our passions, whatever it is. Like, like what is truly supreme in your life? What is it that you hold that you would say has surpassing greatness? Right? The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ further establishes the supremacy that he should have in our lives. And that's what Paul ultimately begins to lead us to. Picking back up then in in verse 19, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. We don't have to take too long on this one because this is just, again, a throwback to the incarnation, everything that we talked about last week. Uh, Here in verse 9, it's being really described with these two words, fullness and dwell. And so, again, fullness essentially means nothing's lacking. Right? There, there is nothing of God that is lacking in Christ. All of his divine attributes, all of his divine qualities, any, anything that we can think of, his wisdom, his righteousness, his glorious power, all of it was in Christ, and it dwelled in Christ. And, and the reason uh, we want to point out that word and what's significant about its usage is that to dwell somewhere means to have a permanence to it. Right, these qualities—the fullness of God—wasn't just temporarily part of Jesus's ministry; it, it it was permanent. Right? It was it was fully with him uh, for the entire duration and beyond. Right? He it dwelled within him, and so what verse nineteen really emphasizes, and what would be important for us to recognize, is to see um, that we we can acknowledge the ability to find. Uh, This not a temporary and partial demonstration of God, but a fullness and a permanence of God, right? And and that should shape our understanding of who he is, right? He's not going to partially resemble himself through Christ. He's not going to just temporarily resemble himself through Christ. It is with fullness, and it is with permanence, right? And so, again, hard to talk about death and resurrection without the incarnation, right? He fully became man, fully God, fully man, and then here's where the the passage really begins to gain some steam and some momentum. Verse 20, and so through him, he does all this, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Okay, if there was a a word, I'm going to try to pinpoint at least two today with a lot of descriptions underneath, a word that would begin to shape your sense of identity. Um, in, in your understanding of how the image of God is restored in you, the first word that I would offer is reconciliation. Right, He, he took on flesh, dwelled among us. He, he, he in, uh, in, encountered the cross, and he went through all the pain and all the suffering, achieved in the resurrection this victory. All of that was to reconcile to himself all things. Right, He, he has come to be a God of reconciliation. That word reconciliation means change. And, and it means complete and total change, right? It, it is not, again, just an incremental or, or partial change. It is a completely different position. And so what has changed specifically is our standing before God, right? That what has changed was going from uh, being an enemy of God, being an enmity towards God, towards being his friend, being uh, reconciled, being restored. We should live as reconciled people. Okay, and here's what I mean by that. Here's where I think that gains some application and impact for us. Uh, I think many of us have probably seen, observed, or even personally experienced what it means to be estranged in a relationship with someone, right? Like, if you've ever had um, any sort of friction at home, be it with a parent, be it with a spouse, be it with a sibling, whatever it is, maybe it's, it's a friendship, but, but you go through those moments where your relationship is estranged. What that does is it creates distance, right? And, and when you live within a strange relationship, what happens? You, you don't talk to each other. Uh, you don't spend as much time. You don't prioritize one another's needs. It, it creates distance. And what changes all of that is when you reconcile. See, reconciliation in a relationship brings closeness. It brings nearness. It brings intimacy. It it, it brings uh, conversation, communication. it, It brings in a certain submission to the needs of someone else. And so when we see this change from being estranged from God, being distant from God, to now being reconciled, that's what it should shape in your life, right? That your relationship with God is now no longer distant, but it fosters that sort of intimacy, that sort of connectivity, that sort of communication that sort of desire to put his needs above your own. You have been reconciled to God. Do you live that way? Or do you live as if you're still estranged or apathetic? The whole reason he came to die and offer his life is so that we could be reconciled. But there was work that had to be done for that reconciliation. In order for that to even be possible, something had to be done, and that's what Paul describes here. To reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. First thing I'll say before getting into the cross here is is understand that the reconciliation that we find through God in Christ is not just for you and me, right? It's for all things. And so when we talk about the brokenness of, of the relationship that we had with God, the relationship that we have with creation, the relationship that we have with one another. He, he's restoring all of it, heaven and earth. He comes to reconcile all things, and He does so by making peace through His blood shed on the cross. And so, if there was a second word that I was going to ask for you to consider, how does it shape your identity and, and your understanding of who you are? It's, it's step one, reconciliation. Step two, peace. That your life is defined by peace. Now, what does that Mean and how is it achieved? The, the way that I want us to embrace the understanding of peace is really by recognizing that the cross achieves both forgiveness and victory. And, and we're going to talk through that, but, but first, I want us to understand how God's justice is upheld through Christ shedding his blood on the cross. Okay, and so we're going to go through a couple different scriptures. You don't have to worry about turning there, we're going to have them on the screen, but I want to make sure that we unpack what Paul has just said. This is a remarkable statement. That he has made peace through his blood being shed on the cross. The first place that I want us to turn would be Isaiah 53, verse five. This is Isaiah's writing on the suffering servant. Okay, this is a very messianic uh, passage that anticipates what the Messiah will do, and this description of the Messiah as a suffering servant. And so, listen to how it is described in verse five. It says, "But he was pierced for our transgressions; he was crushed." For our iniquities. Let me stop there and point out that, that what you have automatically is an understanding of the crucifixion with words like uh, pierced and crushed. And, and that what we see is the reason for that death and, and for that sort of suffering and for that sacrifice is, is not just because Rome didn't know what to do, it's not just because of the chief priests being jealous, it is because of our transgressions and our iniquities. That is the reason for the cross. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. The punishment that brings us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. See, God's justice has to be upheld. And and so when God says, Hey, if you eat of this tree, right, if you give in to that temptation, the consequence for you turning from me, turning from, from my word, turn, turning from this relationship, the consequence for that separation is death, as he explains in Genesis 1 and 2. Right? If, if Paul tells us in Romans that the wages of sin is death, then the punishment that we deserve for the fall and for the curse is death. The only way God's justice can be upheld is for that punishment to be experienced. And what Isaiah tells us is that that punishment, that death that you and I deserved, was upon his shoulders. The only reason peace is possible is because he took the punishment you and I deserve. He took the punishment for all brokenness, all sin. The curse was laid upon him. For the scriptures tell us, cursed is anyone who is hung on a tree. And because he took that penalty, by his wounds, by his piercings, by his transgressions, we are healed. Not his transgressions, but for our transgressions, we are healed. It is his willingness to take on that punishment that we can find peace. Now, what does that peace look like? Right? If, if that's how God demonstrates his justice to say, I know sin has to be dealt with, and so Jesus ultimately pays that price and takes it on himself, then what does that that peace begin to look like? How is it ultimately manifested? And this is where we can go back to Hebrews, all right? So again, we'll have it on the screen, so you don't feel like you have to flip there. But I told you last week, because we were in Hebrews chapter 2 last week, talking about the incarnation, that if you kept reading 5 through 10, you would see this beautiful explanation because what we saw is that Jesus took on flesh so that he could serve as a high priest and make atonement for the sins of his people. And, and so that was this idea that he intercedes on our behalf as the high priest used to, to go into the most holy of holies, uh, to go in God's temple, to, to offer a sacrifice year after year. That's what the high priest would do. And now Jesus comes in in a different way to serve in that same role. So Hebrews chapter 9 gives us a greater understanding and explanation of what this looks like. I'm going to be reading starting in verse 11. It says, But when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands. That is to say it's not part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and of calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. is that this temple that was created in this, in this life by human hands is a replica of an eternal one, right, of a, of a heavenly one. And Jesus, through his sacrifice, doesn't enter into the earthly holy of holies, but the eternal holy of holies, not by the blood of goats and bulls and rams, but by his own blood to secure eternal redemption. Not, not a temporary uh, redemption or atonement that would have to be renewed year after year, but an eternal redemption, And he does so to offer his blood in the most holy of holies that we can be be able to have our consciences cleansed from acts that lead to death so that we might serve the living God. This idea of cleansing our consciences from acts that lead to death tells us that what the death of Jesus Christ has accomplished for you is forgiveness. Can I say something to you today? You are forgiven. You're forgiven. And I I don't want to understate how much that should impact our identity. How many of us go through life shackled with an identity of guilt for things that we've done? Things that we feel like no one could ever forgive us of, especially God. How many of us conjure up a life of secrecy because of the shame of the things that we have done or are doing? And that becomes our identity. That becomes how we see ourselves. That becomes how we view ourselves. What the cross tells you is you're forgiven. You hear that? Live as forgiven people. Live under the identity of the forgiveness that was achieved for you on the cross. It cleanses you. It is there that you find mercy. It is there that you find grace. Nowhere else but the cross. It cleanses you. And it can only come through this sacrifice, right? It says later in 9, verse 22, in fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with. Blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Christ poured out his blood so that you could live a life knowing what it means to be forgiven. And if that is readily on our hearts and readily our, on our minds, that we can recognize the extent to which Christ has forgiven us, then that is the same way that we treat one another. Not towards bitterness, not towards resentment, not towards grudges, but with an all-consuming, never-ending demonstration of mercy and grace. We are forgiven people who are quick to forgive. And when we do that, it allows us to serve the living God. (laughs) That's what it says there, right? It, It says, that you can cleanse your consciences from acts that lead to death, that we might serve the living God. That's the next step towards this sense of identity, that you are offering your life to this gospel, that you can serve him. Are you? Right? Forgiven people recognize that sense of gratitude, and their response is a gratitude that offers their life of servanthood to the one who's forgiven them. Right? And, And so that's again, going to be a chief characteristic of our ability to respond to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. is to know what it means to live as forgiven people. Now, understand what forgiveness looks like. When when Jesus catches the woman in adultery in John chapter 8, he says, who condemns you? She says, no one, sir. He goes, well, neither do I. Go and sin no more. We don't presume upon his forgiveness. We don't take advantage of of his forgiveness, The scriptures say God will not be mocked. You will reap what you sow. But if you truly understand forgiveness, then we don't walk around in a, lift of, in a life of guilt and of shame or resentment or grudges, but we live a life that is there, now willing to allocate and dedicate itself to servanthood towards God. It's marked with forgiveness. Let's continue a little bit. I want to explain this a little bit further by now going to Colossians chapter 2. We're still under how does he make peace through his blood shed on the cross. There's another part where Paul elaborates on this in chapter two, uh, verse 13. He says, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. So what what is being explained here in Colossians two is again, that what it has stood against you was the law, this written code, right? This, this chasm, what, what the scriptures teach us is that the life we were supposed to live, these laws that God said, this is the, the way that you should honor me. We can't achieve it. We can't obtain to it. For as it says in Romans, all fall short of the glory of God, all have sinned, right? So it became something that was unattainable. And so it stood as a written code that brought charges against us. And what the gospel tells us, what his death and resurrection tells us, is that that obstacle has been taken away. And that word taken away means permanently removed. So whatever hindrance you think exists between you and God, between you and reconciliation, it has been removed. It's been taken away. How? It's been nailed to the cross. The cross is what has canceled That written code. That's what gives you this gateway into its forgiveness, but it's not just forgiveness, it's victory. Verse 15: having disarmed the powers and the authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. And now the cross becomes a symbol of victory. The language that Paul is using here in Colossians 2 would have been very familiar to the current readers of the day, because what was customary in in the Greco-Roman world was that after battle, after wartime, Right. what took place is the king would come in on this parade of victory, on this chariot of victory, and he would parade throughout the city, and he would be followed by his soldiers and the others that helped him fight, and at the end of that parade would be all those that they had held captive, conquered kings, people that were vanquished. And it was, it was a display of his power and his authority, and that's the image that Paul just conjured up in his readers' minds to explain what Christ has done to the powers and the authorities to sin and death through the cross it is an undeniable statement of victory, right? And so what you see now that is so remarkable is that the cross becomes not just a symbol of death, but a symbol of victory and a symbol of power, remarkably through what Jesus has done through it. And so again, that idea of victory needs to shape our identity. And so I wanna ask you again, right? Are you living in that sort of victory, right? Like, listen, we need to stop living as if our sin is more powerful than the cross. Like that there's no way out of our depression or our addiction or our loneliness, that renewal isn't possible or that we're just stuck in it. We've got to quit thinking that way. The victory belongs to Jesus Christ. Believe it. Trust it. You're not going to be perfect, you're going to fall. But when we begin to attribute this idea that we're stuck in these things, we are exalting sin over the cross. And Paul just said, no, he made a public spectacle of those things. He has triumphed over those things through the blood of Jesus Christ. And because now you have forgiveness and because you have victory, guess what that gives you, church? It gives you peace. Peace. Right? Peace isn't found in war. It's found in victory. And yes, this this world, our lives are filled with chaos. There's still a battle. There's still a struggle. But what the cross says is that the victory belongs to Jesus. And so in the midst of that struggle, in the midst of that chaos, you get to have peace. So our identity needs to be shaped by those who have been changed, those who have been reconciled, those who can live a life of peace. And we find this peace. How? Because God's justice was upheld in such a way that we have been forgiven and given victory all through the cross. It's a remarkable statement. I hope you understand the significance of it this morning. Let's keep going. Let's finish off these last few verses somewhat quickly. Verse 21, he says, Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. This is a quick reference to what's changed. This is where you were. You were alienated. That means you were actually transferred to the realm and rule of someone else. Uh, you, You once lived in the realm of death. You lived in the realm of sin. You were alienated from God. You were separate from him, right? You were enemies in your mind because of your evil behavior. There was enmity between you and God because of these acts. That's where you were, but he has taken you out of that. That's what's changed. That's what's led to reconciliation that he references again in Verse 22 where you were, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body, once again a reference to the incarnation, through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. And so another description of what the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ accomplishes for us and how it should influence our understanding of our identity. We are now presented because of this reconciliation and this peace, we are presented before him. How does he see you? As holy, without blemish, and free from accusation. Now, what does that mean? Okay, uh, because this idea of holiness can feel like, well, I've got to uh, do all the, the right things. I've got to be holier than thou. I've got to never make mistakes. And, and anybody that's lived, you know, for any extended amount of time knows that that's impossible. Right? And so it, it's not this perfection of holiness. Holiness means uh, consecrated. It means Dedicated. Right? And so what we're talking about here is the only appropriate response for what Jesus has done to you, which is a full-hearted dedication to him. Right? Like, I'm consecrating my life. I, Romans 12, I'm offering myself as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. What it says is that nothing else will I offer myself to. And so again, a question to evaluate how we're pursuing this sort of identity. What are you offering yourself to? What are you giving your life to? Right, like, like where does Christ fall in that list? If we're giving more of ourselves to our jobs, to our families, to our, our personal pursuits and pleasures, then we are not living out this response of living in holiness. we got to offer everything we are to him. That is not about being perfect. That is not about getting it all right. That is saying you're all that matters, so you get my whole life. And I'm offering everything to you no matter what it is. So we offer ourselves wholly in his sight, without blemish. Okay, again, this is an important term. That's a sacrificial term, right? The sacrifice that needed to be offered uh, in the sacrificial, was, the sacrificial system was a, a sacrifice, a ram or a goat, whatever, that didn't have any blemishes, right? It couldn't be the one you didn't want. It couldn't be the run of the litter. It had to be something special and prefer- uh, uh, precious, And if you saw it back in Hebrews 9, we had the same description of Jesus, that he was offered as a sacrifice without blemish. And so it's a sacrificial term. So here's what it means, okay? This is not about your conduct. Again, we're going to make mistakes. This is about your standing before God. And because the sacrifice that brings you peace, the punishment that was upon his shoulders that brings you peace, because Christ was without blemish, God now sees you through the lens of Christ. The way that we've talked about it before is that he takes all of our sin and gives us all of his righteousness. So it's not about what you can do. It's not about you living a perfect life or earning his favor. It's about trusting in what Christ has done for you. That when, when God sees you, he sees the sacrifice of his son without blemish. And because the punishment that brings us peace was upon His shoulders, we now stand as those who are free from accusation. Right? There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So when we find reconciliation, when we find peace, we begin to understand a life that is responding through all that Christ has accomplished in us, or for us. Right? That He has accomplished the ability for us to be able to stand without blemish, free from accusation, and we offer ourselves wholly in his sight. What a remarkable thing the cross and the resurrection have done for us. Let's finish. If, if you continue in your faith, it's a good reminder that this is a choice. It's held out to you. It's offered to you you receive it. It takes faith. It takes trust. And once you receive it, it's not just for a moment. It's not just a decision. It's something that has to be continued. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and you do not move from the hope held out in the gospel, this is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. So his, his last few comments, there are more exaggeration, kind of hyperbole. We know it hasn't been spoken to every creature, but his point is this is the gospel that we're taking everywhere. This is what I am serving, and, and it's a good reminder that the essence, we talk about this all the time, the essence of the gospel is Christ crucified and resurrected. And Let us never wander from that. Let us never stray from that. Let us always remember that that is the essence of the gospel. This is the message that we serve. That's the message that changed town to town, village to village, generation to generation, and still is being proclaimed today. Christ crucified and resurrected. And so here's how we respond to it. Here's how we continue in our faith. I'll close with this. We want to be established and firm and not move from the hope held out in the gospel. The idea of being established means to build your life on the rock. Right? We've seen the parable where Jesus talks about that, uh, I I often think about his words to Peter um, when he says, after Peter declares that he's the Christ, he says, this has been given to you, and, and on this rock I will build my church, that the gates of hell will not even prevail against it. So when you talk about being established, right, being built upon a rock, that's a sort of strength that the cross and the resurrection secures for us that even the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. It doesn't matter how vicious or how evil this world may get. Nothing overcomes the power of the cross. Be established in that power. Build your life on that rock. Be firm. Right? The idea of being firm means there's a certain steadiness to it. Right? You're settled in on it. This is not a tossing and turning and going with the waves of the culture and the sentiments of the masses, but there is a resolute standing within this gospel that I stand upon what has been secured for me through the cross and the resurrection. We are established and firm. And this is what teases next week and how I'll close this today, that we don't move from this hope that's held out in the gospel. Church, it should be incredibly um, profound, stirring, encouraging, whatever description you want to give to it, to recognize that what was once known as a picture of brutal execution and death is for us a symbol of unwavering hope. That's the cross. That Jesus' death and resurrection secures for you and me an unwavering Hope that can never be lost. An immovable hope that becomes the anchor of our souls. That's what his death and resurrection mean for us. And we're going to dive into that hope in greater detail next week. But understand, that should shape us as well. That because we're reconciled, because we have peace, we are people of unwavering hope. N.T. Wright says it really well. I'm going to end with a couple of quotes. He says, Genuine Christian hope. Rooted in Jesus' resurrection is the hope for God's renewal of all things, for his overcoming of corruption, decay, and death, and for his filling of the whole cosmos with his love and grace, his power and his glory. That is a breathtaking reality to consider, church. And it means that there's a response required of us. There's something that because of that hope, because of the promise of the resurrection, this life, our day-to-day, it matters. There is work to do to know this gospel and to be encouraged and equipped to proclaim it. And, and I love the way that this is mentioned in, in uh, Imes' book, Being God's Image. He says, without the resurrection, the incarnation was temporary, and so is the world, and so are we. The resurrection proves that creation still matters. It demonstrates that humans are still the crown of creation. It validates our physical embodiment on this planet, upholding it as something destined for restoration. Without the resurrection, Jesus becomes just another self-proclaimed Messiah. If Jesus' spirit had returned to heaven while his body remained in the tomb, then at best we'd have a disembodied faith that hopes to outlast our mortal bodies. But this is not what God offers. When the disciples meet the resurrected Jesus, he is physically present. The grave is empty. The good news is not merely that Jesus lives in our hearts after his death. It's not that his spirit has been released so that he's more alive than before. Jesus is who he was, embodied. The good news is that Jesus is physically present with them again. He is alive. Jesus' resurrection is not only good news for us personally, it is good news for the future of this created world. By rising again in the flesh, Jesus demonstrates God's commitment to the physical world, affirming that creation still matters. And if creation still matters, then we still have a job to do. We still have a job to do. And it's rooted in understanding the cross and the hope of the resurrection. And so regardless of where you are in life, fix your eyes on the wonderful Cross that has changed you, that gives you peace through forgiveness and victory, that makes you holy, without blemish, free from accusation in this unmovable hope. And let that be your identity to look upon this cross where the Prince of Glory died, where love was so amazing. And so divine that all we can respond is to recognize that it demands our life, our soul, our all. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we love you. and We are so grateful for the cross. And we pray that as we gather here today and as we prepare to go out into the world, our identity would be firmly established in what you have done for us through Jesus on the cross. God, that we would live as those who are reconciled. We would live as those who have peace. God, those who understand the forgiveness that you offer and the victory that is secured for us, may we once again respond with overwhelming joy and praise and what has been done for us through the cross of Jesus Christ, and the hope that it provides that we would give all that we are to it, both today and forevermore. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.